We will definitely be back in July. In July. In July. In July. In July. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe you remember that promise I made in our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what month is it now? It's September, Matthew. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, sometimes your summer gets kind of busy and you have to take an extra month or so away from your hobby podcast. Emphasis on hobby. Yeah, yeah. right? Thankfully, we don't chill for paying advertisers like Casper or Simply Safe. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't want to turn this podcast into a job because that just makes it less fun. Yeah, it's not fun anymore because you're relying on a paycheck, right? Yeah, it's, you know, we're, we're fortunate enough to do this on our own time. And while we were very good at doing it on a weekly basis, we went through 19 episodes. And we were sick for like most of those episodes because we were so stressed and not sleeping enough. Can I also just say that like when you made your little vomit sound on Simply Safe before, like I think it's really bad that I listen to a lot of murder podcasts and I think it's really bad that Simply Safe advertises on murder podcasts, right? Because it's Oh, it's completely ethically dubious to yeah, me. Yeah, you're listening to, you know, a whole season of the Golden State Killer. Like, listen, as a man brutally rapes and murders dozens of people uh, and, you know, breaks into houses. Now, are you proper scared? Why don't you buy a home security system from our program sponsor? Like... I, and I mean, know. if you're a pro, the answer to that is because BTK was uh, a security salesman. Right, ADT salesman yeah. <laughs> or whatever. But I don't know. It just reminds me of, like, yeah, it's, I don't it's know, terrible. It's Alex Jones shilling for his own... Boner pills. Yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> well, anyway, because uh, our lives got kind of unmanageable in the first half of this year, we are making efforts to improve upon our time management by taking on some help. Please welcome to the Boghouse family two new members, audio assistant Kate and research assistant Clarice. Woohoo! They're going to be learning the ropes and fingers crossed keeping the ship sailing. See what I'm doing there? I'm like... Oh, that's appropriate. Using... Yeah. Yeah. Today, we're actually missing out on being on a boat to record for you. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Tom from the Privy Diggers... Who you might remember from episodes 17 and 18. You should remember. I, I hope so. Tom's awesome. <laughs> He's so awesome. He brought us boat up the Delaware River today and invited us. And uh, we turned him down to sit in front of microphones. I don't know what I was actually kind of bummed by that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would have been cool to be on a boat. Also, like, how weird is that that Tom owns a boat? It's just such a weird thing to me. <laughs> <laughs> but so sorry, Tom, if you're listening, we decided to. I don't know, make podcast instead. Uh, when you say there's going to be a next time, I hope you follow through. We'll see you on that boat later. Yeah, we'll take pictures from the boat and I'll make cheesy comments about being on a boat. <laughs> In other bog house news, we recently had a huge profile written about our archaeological exploits in Hidden City, Philadelphia. Yeah, Hidden City. Yeah. Um, that's uh, one of these really cool websites that I've been following basically since we moved into Philadelphia. It sheds light on forgotten and lesser-known locations and the history behind those locations and, and people in the city. So it was really cool to see us on the front page of Hidden City. For sure. Thank you so much to Michelle Zipkin for writing it. 
I didn't even realize until after it was published that Zipkin rhymes with Pipkin <laughs> and how awesome that is and we should write a song. Um, but anyway, if you want to read that profile, and you do, you should follow us on our social media accounts because we posted it there or you can go to our website, boghouse.thehanna.org and we have a link to that profile there for all your reading pleasure. Also, recently we got some feedback from our fans that we should maybe be putting transcripts of our episodes online to make this podcast more accessible. And we are working on that and hope to have those transcripts available soon. It turns out that neither of us are stenographers. I know a little bit about stenographers because I used to, when I lived in Australia, I worked in um, closed captions as an editor. And stenos, stenographers are really expensive and we have no budget. So we cannot hire stenos to do a really amazing job of typing up all of our podcasts. So we have to start by using robots. Yeah, it turns out that Google Cloud Services have recently launched long-form audio speech-to-text API. Don't worry about what that means if you don't know what it means. Um, it's okay. But this weekend, we spent many hours trying to figure out how to get it to work, which is actually really funny because Melissa dived into this. She went Googling for it and found a page that said, quick start, learn in five minutes. Yeah, that was total bullshit. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I was like... I think you were expecting like a drag and drop, like drop your MP3 here, get text there. Look, if a button says quick start, learn in five minutes, I really expect it to be learn in five minutes, like eight minutes tops. And maybe it would have taken me five minutes if I were already a DevOps engineer, which I fucking am not. But, you know, <laughs> It reminds me of, um, there's like a gag in a Monty Python book. I think it's a song book. And it says like, how to play piano. Pick a key, put it in the piano and open it. Move your fingers over the keys. And then there's an asterisk. And at the bottom of the page, it says, like, like a, a pianist. pianist. Yeah. So it's like, you can learn something in five minutes if you've spent 13 years learning how to be a musician before that. That's just what I felt this button was. It really pissed me off, actually. Yeah, we... <laughs> Went down the rabbit hole there for a little bit and, and had to pull ourselves back from the brink when we weren't getting that five-minute like instant two, response. Two and a half hours. I'm like, are you fucking shitting me? Um, but anyway, this Google speech-to-text application is improving in leaps and bounds like just in the last couple of weeks there are options in pre-release which are going to make it way easier for us to make good transcripts so stay tuned to our social media accounts in the next few months as we figure out how it all works and then hopefully we'll have transcripts for you to read so you don't have to listen to our really annoying voices <laughs> <laughs> that, that goes out to you reviewer <laughs> I love the reviewers that say our voices are annoying. My voice, specifically. All right, all right. On with the show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> take a seat here in the bog house. We want to start out by going back and revealing an encounter that we only really alluded to previously in a somewhat mysterious manner. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the last episode, we mentioned that we attended an information session at the Cherry Street Pier, talking about the archaeological excavation at the West Shipyard underneath a Philadelphia Parking Authority parking lot at the corner of Callow Hill Street and Delaware Ave. And we kind of glossed over a funny thing that happened at that information session because we were still kind of reeling from it at the time. Uh, but it's been a few months. <laughs> <now>. Indeed. <laughs> 
so <laughs> I think we're settled enough now and we have more to say. So we're going to elaborate on what really happened at the conclusion of that information session and what happened as a result of that information session in the month of June. First of all, the name of the development organization that is building the slot, which we didn't reveal in the last episode, but mentioned that you may have heard of, is the Durst Organization. The first reason that you might have heard of them is because they have built and developed some extremely well-known properties in New York City. They're New York City's largest private commercial building owners. Maybe you've heard of the New World Trade Center Tower. Mm -hmm. Maybe one Bryant Park. Condé Nast building. These are just a couple of the things. Basically, you know how Trump is always bragging about how successful he is as a New York City developer? These people actually are that successful. The Trump family is like chump change compared to the Dursts. <laughs> I just read a press release that they put out in response to the IPO for WeWork, mm. which was, you know, this big deal. It's a terrible idea. I, I don't know why anybody would invest in this because it's awful. But, Investment tips from the bunker. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, but in, in the press release from WeWork, they boasted about their real estate model and the Durst organization was like, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> We've been doing this for a century. We've been doing this for four generations. It said something like, we never laid anyone off in the entire duration of our organization. <laughs> That's how successful we are. Well, okay, so maybe you've heard of the Dursts because they built these really big skyscrapers in New York City. But if we're going to be blisteringly honest, the real reason that you might have heard of the Durst family is if you are really into true crime the way I am and you have watched the HBO documentary, The Jinx, because that is about Robert Durst who is a member of this family. Now, Robert Durst has been in the news a lot, like right now, right this summer. Literally yesterday in Bloomberg, there was a story by Eric Larson about his upcoming murder trial in Los Angeles for allegedly murdering his best friend, Susan Berman, in 2000. Mm. Um, and the case in the documentary are really, really famous for the hot mic confession of Robert Durst, where he went into the bathroom with a hot mic and started talking to himself and confessed to a murder without realizing that he was being recorded. So that kind of got even more famous than the documentary. I've run into a lot of people who haven't seen the jinx but read about that episode I remember when it came out. That was such a crazy story. Yeah. So um, um, you want to give like a little background to like who the Durst family is? Sure. After going through what we've been through, we did a little bit of research on the Durst family <laughs> just to get some information about the folks who are moving into the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. All of them have Wikipedia articles about them anyway. So This is what happens when you're massively successful, I suppose. <laughs> One day, you've got a Wikipedia article. Joseph Durst was a Polish Jewish immigrant who came to the U.S. in 1902 with about $3 to his name, which, to be fair, in 1902 is like $15. <laughs> um, he didn't know how to speak English. He was born in 1882, which makes him two years older than the Russian Jewish immigrant Solomon Warshaw, who owned our building in the 1940s. They might have actually had quite similar stories. Yeah, and also, if you think about the last name Warshaw, look, I mean, I'm just guessing here, but... 
Solomon Warshaw had a draft card that I found that said he was born in Russia, but the fact that his last name is Warshaw makes me wonder if he probably has a Polish connection. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I don't know that much about last names, but probably. So, yeah, there was clearly this wave of immigration from Eastern European Jews in the early 1900s, and they were part of that same wave. Joseph Durst was a tailor who became a partner in a dressmaking business. Another connection to... uh Daniel Williams here in terms of like working with fabrics and and all that. making America. (laughs) Uh, But then he started investing in real estate and started the Durst organization in the 1920s. Uh, I found, or the New York Times found, I should say, a newspaper ad from 1915, which characterizes his approach as a businessman. It said, the new Durst way, no salesman, no unnecessary expenses, just plain solid merchandise. Right on. I mean, that sounds almost Quakerish, actually, if you think about it. And definitely sounds like Matt's approach to commerce. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, in today's environment isn't necessarily great. Uh, there was somebody from Apple who tried to do that with, I think it was J.C. Penney. Oh, right. It was like, oh, these sales, it's all misleading. Let's just put prices as they are. Sure. And people will trust us. It failed miserably. Different environment. Anyway, Joseph's son, Seymour, took over the business in the 70s. Seymour's two oldest sons are Robert Durst, previously mentioned, and Douglas Durst, who currently runs the Durst organization. I think they mention in the jinx that Seymour's wife, Bernice, died in 1950. There's some question about, how do they say she died? Well, the, the official version is that she fell off a roof in 1950. But Robert Durst who is clearly a problematic storyteller for several reasons, claims that she jumped off the roof deliberately and that he witnessed it, like the omen style. <laughs> right. And uh, But this is like disputed by the other members of his family. In any case, she died too young from a fall off a roof in 1950. And uh, there's kind of obviously a trauma that had an effect on at least one member of the family, being Robert Durst. So, I mean... You can't pick your family, uh, obviously, with all of Robert's uh, legal problems. He is not involved in the running of the actual real estate development business, which was pretty clear in the documentary as well. Mm. Um, He's basically completely estranged from his family and uh, may even have had plans to kill his brother Douglas in 2001 during a manhunt. Right. Um, he like he skipped bail on a murder charge in Galveston, Texas, and went on the run. There's lots of details to that. You should just watch the documentary or read the newspaper reports that we'll link to get all of the details because they are crazy. But at some point in his flight from justice, he pulled into his brother's driveway with two loaded guns. And so the family was like, oh, my God, was he planning on murdering his younger brother out of sort of jealousy and resentment? In any case, what a mess. Listen, I have a really problematic family, too. (laughs) (laughs) So all of this is to say... It's just fascinating. Yeah, it's totally fascinating. And money and privilege do not protect you from having a family dysfunction by any means. And we've... Like I said, I have a problematic family. You can't pick your family. I don't hold anything against the other members of the family that they clearly have a member who is in trouble, <laughs> to say the least. 
When we went to this information session at Cherry Street Pier, it felt like we knew an unusual amount about the Durst family, not just their buildings, mm -hmm. because of that documentary that we watched. Yeah. Uh, and we noticed at the session that there were a number of people wearing nice suits. There was definitely better catering than there usually is at Cherry Street Pier. <laughs> and next to that catering were tiny jars of Durst honey, which on the label it says, harvested from hives on our green rooftops in New York City. And I was like, okay, there are these people standing around in nice suits and there's Durst merchandise on the table. Oh my God, is there a Durst in the room? <laughs> and so I immediately start going to Google and trying to find pictures of all of the Dursts to see if I can identify any of the people in suits to see if any of them are Dursts. And sure enough... I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, that one right there. That is Alexander Durst. He is the son of Douglas Durst. He's the nephew of Robert Durst that the jinx is about. What and I'm the like, stop it. I <laughs> you can't take me anywhere. <laughs> I'm like, look, 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 it's the guy. That's the guy from the family. <laughs> <laughs> and then he stood up. He wasn't just there to observe. He was actually there to give a presentation at the event. Somewhat surprisingly, rather than just talking about the proposed development, Alexander talked mostly about his family's interest in the archaeology of the site. It turns out that his grandfather, Seymour Durst, was particularly interested in the history of New York City and has a huge collection of original documents and letters that he housed in a collection that came to be known as the Old York Library. And nothing to do with York, PA. Um, <laughs> Old York, like uh, New York. Right. It was about New York. Right. Right. Eventually, this collection was acquired by Columbia University, and you can actually see it publicly at their Avery Architecture and Fine Arts Library. And even more than that, Alexander's first cousin is anthropologist and archaeologist Nan Rothschild, who has a whole, you know, anthropology, archaeology career and was until quite recently on faculty at Columbia University. The website for her at Columbia sort of talks about her interests and she says... I have done prehistoric, historic, and ethnoarchaeology. My field research has taken place in North America, in and around New York City, on the Zuni Reservation, and in the Rio Grande Valley in New Mexico. I have studied and continue to be interested in a number of sociocultural issues, colonial encounters in North America, that's relevant, <laughs> changes in gender role and status, the construction and recognition of coherent subunits within urban entities, I don't know what that means, <laughs> and the way in which food is used to express social and symbolic concepts. Totally up my alley. <laughs> In trying to understand the past, additions to traditional archaeological data, such as the use of documentary information, like a podcast, and the observation of the interaction between people and things in living societies, including how artifacts enter the archaeological record, are important sources of information. Like, hang on. Yeah. This, this is the thing where we thought they were going to go and present what their building's going to look like. Right. And maybe talk a little bit about archaeology. But that, it turns out they're pretty hardcore into this like sort of stuff. the history of things. They're yeah. not just, you know, oh, the government made me look at history, so I guess I'll pay someone to look at history. They were like, no, 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 we're genuinely interested in this. And not just interested, but there's a pretty significant track record there as well. Like yeah. they put up. Another thing that Alexander talked about during this presentation was the Durst organization's involvement in the preservation and renovation of a theater. What? 
<laughs> so like we're we're just sitting here. We're I think we were front row. Yeah. We were like right up front, and I, I'm sure our eyes were crossing. Yeah, as, I was like talking. grabbing your thigh. <laughs> like, wh- what did I just fucking hear? Okay, cool. So what was he? Um, they were talking about the Stephen Sondheim Theater. Right. Oh. It's formerly known as the Henry Miller Theater, and it's actually located on the grounds of one Bryant Park, the big skyscraper that they built. And I think he talked about how technically they could have just raised it, like they had the right to do that, but. In Instead, they chose to keep the historic facade at the ground level and then turn the inside into a LEED gold certified, which just means it's like stupendously environmentally green theater. That theater is now the home base of Roundabout Theater Company, which is a name that we recognize not only because they're kind of a big deal New York professional theater Mm -hmm. but their posters for some of their productions grace the walls of the eugene o'neill theater center where the puppet camp is because some of the new works developed at the o'neill have gone on to be produced by roundabout theater company and then it turns out douglas durst who heads the durst organization is like the director of the board of roundabout as well so so this was nuts this was ridiculous yeah as you can probably imagine, by the time Alexander Durst got finished talking about how he was a big-time real estate developer, but he's actually just here to talk about archaeology and theater, we're practically leaping out of our chairs yeah. and being like, hi, hi, hi. <laughs> excuse too. me, excuse me, I have some things in common that I wish to talk to you about. Excuse <laughs> me, excuse me. <laughs> I, like, ran at him when the talk was over and, like, thrust bog house postcards into his hand and was just like, read this! And uh, I think To be he, fair, you do that to strangers on the street. I mean, I do. But he looked at the postcard yeah. and immediately started laughing because he got how bizarre this is. And the postcard expresses that pretty well. <laughs> oh, by the way, for those of you out there listening who are like, what is this postcard of which you speak? If you want one of those postcards printed by fireball printing here in philadelphia you can still ask us for one just hit us up on social media dm us your mailing address and we will put one in the mail for you for free on the condition that you post it on your social media account when you get it so we both went up and talked to alexander after he was done talking to everybody uh they had done a q a session with the folks who were there who had their own questions about what the future of the waterfront might be like and that kind of died down, and uh, we we ran up and just started talking about all this stuff that we weirdly have in common. And the end result of that is that... Uh, that you charmed the hell out of him, Matt. <laughs> I think it was interesting because uh, in, in my current role at work, I do end up talking to a lot of people who um, are a lot more successful than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it's taught me to not be intimidated. Like, I'm literally just talking to other people. Sure. And it, it doesn't matter if their haircuts cost more than mine. Right. Uh, everybody's haircuts cost more than mine because I cut my own hair. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we talked and uh, he, you know, upon hearing about our interest in building a theater and the archaeology that we're doing, invited us to an art gala, uh, he said, run by my sister uh, up in Manhattan. And we kind of thought, Matt was telling me about this after, and I was like, oh, he's just being polite, right? Like, Right, it sounded like he was making small talk, and he was, you know, being <laughs> generous about it, but, I'm, like... I'm always so awkward about these interactions. Like, I just assume as soon as I turn my back that people are rolling their eyes and being like, oh my god, that woman was such a crazy person. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> wow, I can't believe she talked to me. I never want to see her again. <laughs> and sometimes you're you're in a situation where it's kind of the point is that you're there to to be a face on on the ground and mm-hmm. just to like make nice and then beat feet back to where you're going to. Sure. But after we finish talking, he gives me his business card. <laughs> and it's like, oh, oh, um, right, we're doing this. Uh, I was not expecting that, but I gave him my business card. Okay. And it turns out, shortly after that, I got an email from Anita Durst, uh-huh. his, his sister. Okay, so what did the email say? <laughs> <clears throat> this is me reciting it from memory, not at all reading <laughs> it from a piece of paper in front of me that Alyssa printed out this morning. <laughs> On behalf of Alexander Durst, please come as my guests to the most outrageous art party on June 13th at One World Trade Center. What? The Cheshama Gala is a free-flowing, immersive event starring 200-plus installations and performers. The event attracts 800 of the city's most forward-thinking landowners, corporate executives, arts professionals, and innovative creators. That's that's all us. We're all of those. (laughs) Um... I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Kindly RSVP to Bianca by Monday, June 3rd. And please feel free to reach out with any questions. Our artists are getting ready for you. Wait, what does that mean? Our artists are getting ready for you. uh, I I don't know. Um, (laughs) I also couldn't respond to Bianca because she wasn't CC'd. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I I clicked through to this Eventbrite thing. uh, Like invitation. Invitation. And there's where the details unfold that this uh, was not only taking place in one World Trade Center, it was going to be on the 66th and 67th floors of that tower. So like the whole floors? Like the whole floor, both floors. (laughs) Most of the way up the World Trade Center is this art gala. Okay. Um and, and then, then like yeah. what is Chishama? Exactly. Like yeah, what what is Chishama? We we had to google this because yeah. we're not in New York City obviously. So Anita Durst has worked for over two decades basically securing uh, millions of square feet of space in New York for artists. So I, I think it's the kind of thing they may know a few developers. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> just a couple of people who are who have spare land. And there's, uh, obviously, I think anybody who's listening to this has noticed the trend over the last decade of, like, pop-ups, right? Whether it's uh, pop-up beer gardens or pop-up whatever. This is Anita arranging with developers who have vacant space to donate that space to artists, whether they're using them as uh, studios or building installations in those spaces but coordinating two very different sides of, I think, the social spectrum. Right. Yeah, because New York City real estate is famously some of the most scarce and expensive real estate in the world. So artists in New York City have it particularly hard when trying to find performance space that's affordable um, or rehearsal or studio space that's affordable. So the whole point of this nonprofit is to try to give them free space and give developers a way to give back to the community by donating that space. It's also important to point out that Chishama was founded in 1995 by Anita to celebrate the legacy of theater visionary Reza Abdo. This guy was an Iranian-born director and playwright, and he was known for large-scale experimental theatrical productions, which he often staged in unusual spaces like warehouses and abandoned buildings, which 
Today doesn't sound all that unusual. Right. But I'm sure, you know, this was like a groundbreaking work that he was doing in New York City. And now, you know, it's actually pretty commonplace to see or hear about theatrical productions that use unusual spaces. The Philly Fringe Festival is... All about it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so this gala, gala, gala... There are, why are there 18 ways to pronounce that word? I'm going to say gala. Is that what you said? Gala? Sure. Okay. This gala um, was taking place on June 13th. And wouldn't you fucking know it, <laughs> that is splat bang in the middle of the National Puppetry Conference at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Centre. It is on Thursday night, which is the first night of tech rehearsal for the conference public performances. That which, if you're not in the performing arts, that's like mandatory. Yeah, you can't night. you can't skip out of a tech rehearsal. You definitely can't if you're me, because I'm in charge of all of the music that's being played at the performances. I'm like the point person for the music, so I can't leave. However, I am a mere assistant. You are just my <laughs> assistant at the conference. So we've been thinking about this and I, I RSVP'd. I never heard back. Uh, actually, when I RSVP'd, I was like, oh, no, I didn't copy Bianca. Um, but I said, you know, we'll, we'll both try to make it there. And I put together that while I was up in Connecticut, I could just use some Amtrak points that I'd collected over the years and just catch a free train to and from Manhattan from New London. Sure. That way, if... Unfortunately, I sent this email out and the whole thing is just a great gag and I'm not at the list. I don't spend any money and it's just, you know, a few hours out of my day. I will say that we spent most of the first half of Puppet Camp obsessively (laughs) telling people that Matt was going to an insane art gala at the World Trade Center and uh, we kept asking people about Chishama and it actually turns out that our good friend James Godwin who is a New York City puppeteer that we just adore I love you Jimbo um, he was like oh yeah Chishama I've been the recipient of grants of this <laughs> like they do good work <laughs> so it's even more and more real as, as this month progresses yeah but i will also say that i was looking at pictures from past galas <laughs> of past chishama galas and the pictures were crazy like just very wild party crazy i felt very boring looking at these pictures and thinking like oh my i don't have girls covered in molten wax at any of my parties or like people dressed as dinosaurs you know like making, copulating copulating on a stage i have no like <laughs> amazing performance artists doing maybe when we open the theater we will have like incredible performance artists doing really um a beautiful yet challenging works of art on a stage but uh right now i feel extremely boring um and I, but, and i was really like matt you're gonna go down to this bizarro art party and uh uh hopefully not get into trouble <laughs> I've been pretty good at staying out of trouble most of my life. Um, I get pretty close to trouble, but I don't actually get in it usually. Everyone was like, oh, you're very trusting, Melissa, to let Matt go down to this like weird art gala by himself in New York City. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, you know, we've been married for 15 and a half years. I think I can trust him. It'll be fine. Okay, so describe what happens. You, you catch the train down, you catch the subway to the World Trade Center Tower, and you get in 
the ground level and what do you see well first i see a, a line i see that i am in fact in the right place oh there was a line to get in yeah already well they were yeah I, I was there very early it was opening at six o'clock and i got there at like six ten. Mm-hmm. there were only a couple of trains in and out of new london back and forth to new york so i had about an hour that i could spend here so i got in a little bit after six o'clock i got in line and when I uh, got up to the table, I said, my name's Matt Dunphy. I think I'm on the list. And they go, oh, yep, here you go. Oh, and you get this red ribbon. This apparently means that I'm not just there for the show, but the gala as well, uh, which I don't really know what that means. But <laughs> It means you're in the same club as the people who actually paid like four or five figures to be at this event. But There were some expensive tickets that you could purchase. Right. Uh, Luckily, fortunately, I was here as Alexander's guest. Okay. <laughs> My buddy. Um, <laughs> My buddy. <laughs> so uh, I, I walk over to the elevator and they actually send me up to the 64th floor. Okay. And as I get up there, I'm just reflecting on like, holy shit, I'm in the World Trade Center. <laughs> <laughs> By invitation. <laughs> By, by invitation. Uh-huh. The doors open up to the 64th floor and... I hear the sound of an opera singer and I walk out into the hallway and I look out and there's an older woman doing like slow motion movement work in this red gown that extends across the floor like it takes up as much space as four times our bedroom floor space. Like the skirt is like a rug when it comes off the bottom of the skirt. It just keeps going out to like the edges. And behind her is Manhattan. <laughs> Just like I'm Oh, like at, the window. Yeah, yes. It's I'm on the sixty-fourth floor. Uh, and there's this panorama of the island of New York with somebody singing solo, somebody doing motion work, and I'm pretty sure that when I take the next elevator, I'm going to fight the boss. <laughs> Like this is this is the enemy level. I've I've reached like the end of the game and I've saved up my power ups and I'm getting this big dramatic entrance that is actually very minimal because I'm about to go into a big fight. Okay, so what is this what is the purpose of this floor? Like did you have to check in somewhere or nope. it was just an intro. Oh, it was just like here's a performance space. Here's a performance space. Okay. Uh you you walk by, I, I took some pictures. Uh not nearly as many as I would have liked, but I got on the elevator, and that went up to the 66th floor. Who knows what's on the 65th floor? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's where the Illuminati meet. <laughs> right, right. That's where they're, yeah. Um, so, on the 66th floor, the elevator doors open up, and this is an unfinished space. So, unlike the floor that I was just on, everything's exposed concrete, uh, the exposed fire protection, sort of stenciled on the wall in big blue numbers is 66. That's great. So, it's like a construction space, which we're very used to. Yeah, not unlike <laughs> the first floor of my building. <laughs> I do art in the first floor of an unfinished space, too. That's right. We have um, so much in common. Yeah. <laughs> and this, as I walk out is now where it is happening. This is not even the gala, technically. Okay. This is the performance space. Oh, this is the artists that are getting ready for you. I think some of them were still getting ready. I was pretty early. (laughs) But there were... 
installations all around the floor. You had uh, performance artists walking around. I uh, remember seeing there was a woman who had a TV for a head that was actually a camera that was projecting into a television that she was dragging around like a pet. And she was in a tight red bodysuit. Otherwise, there was, uh, what else? A train of clowns walking around just roped to each other in clown suits you and said that there was some works that were on the theme of like environmentalism and like destruction of the environment right oh yes it was clear a lot of the folks here knew they were very aware of the folks they were catering to and the folks that were making this happen which uh, again the folks they're catering to are forward-thinking landowners corporate executives arts professionals and innovative creators <laughs> or as I called my fellow guests, the finance bros. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah. Wait, and wait. It, I got I to set a scene a little bit more. So what were you wearing? I was just wearing sort of a leather jacket. Pretty casual. You yeah. know, I, I had jeans, a t-shirt, might have been a nine-inch nail shirt. <laughs> what were the other guests wearing? Expensive suits and the hair product. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look like an artist and I didn't look like a finance bro. And uh, that, I think, attracted some attention. Um, <laughs> so I mean, like what? some of these people were interactive anyway. There was mm-hmm. one woman who was walking around dressed kind of like a, a, a doll, but she was pushing a, a beach cart with baby food containers that she would scoop plastic into and cap off and silently hand to you. And uh, I guess I didn't realize at the time, uh, Melissa recognized this as beach plastic. There was another installation where there were two women, they were just playing in a an alcove full of plastic bags. Thousands and thousands of plastic bags and two women uh, playing around, tastefully clothed. Okay. Um, <laughs> And Okay, Matt was sending me pictures because I'm demanding pictures while I'm in tech up in Connecticut. And uh, like, send more pictures to me. Like, take more pictures. What the hell is going on over there? I remember you sent me a picture of a, a dancer wearing a horse head mask. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, what is happening right now? Like, what? what oh, what? yeah, there were two women, uh, again, in, in some kind of tight bodysuit, but they had horse head masks. And they were just dancing on like a piece of yoga mat in front of again the window like this how are you not space. thinking equus at this point <laughs> like i'm just like oh my god it's equus are they gonna do equus <laughs> anyway uh there were folks walking around in oversized it was like alice in wonderland a bit mm. like all kinds of different folks putting on a show what was your favorite piece of art the vagina. Oh, Derek, my God. Tell me, tell, me, <laughs> tell me everything. Go, go. There was this neon vagina on the wall. By the, neon, uh, you mean neon... Fluorescent sign. lights. Uh, right, neon lights. Neon lights. Actual, yeah, neon as in the gas charged by electricity. <laughs> um, and it was this sequence that ran for like 15 seconds. It's basically illustrating the orgasm. The female orgasm. Which, I mean, of course, you you knew that's where I was going. Eventually, as we started talking about this, we would start talking about sex. Um, (laughs) And it was really beautifully done. And just the sequence of different things lighting up sure. as different things the were, female were being orgasm represented. Is a beautiful thing, of yeah. course. And it it, <laughs> it it ends with this banner across the bottom after birds show up and, and fireworks go off, <laughs> and a banner that says, "I can feel." And I 
took video of this uh vertical video was actually appropriate in this case um it, <laughs> it we'll, we'll post it we'll yeah. post it so you can see and as uh i put the camera down i feel somebody beside me who then reaches for my hand grabs my hand and says hello i'm Susie. i made this and <laughs> i i'm like oh yeah it's fantastic i hi hi and she's looking at me like an artist looks at a potential patron Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden i got a little uncomfortable uh she thought i had way more money than i do (laughs) so well i mean and we've run into this before i know it's weird but we've actually run into this before where matt has accidentally been underdressed in a space full of very well-dressed people who have thousands of times the net worth that we have. Do we ever tell that story on this I don't think we've ever told it on the podcast. We might tell this story now. Okay, listen. So I was at Westchester University. I got my Bachelor of Music there. Uh, This would have been in like 2008. Eight or so, they opened a brand new building for the uh, the School of Music. The Swope S- Hall. The Swope School of Music. Yeah, there the Swope go. Hall. I can't remember. The Swope Building, whatever. Swope. And as part of the building opening, they organized two concerts, like on a Friday and a Saturday night, to christen the opening of this new building. And of course, I'm playing in the orchestra, and so I need to uh, be at both of the concerts. And I'm like, well, Matt, do you want to come to one of these concerts? Um Sure. You actually got me tickets for both nights. And I remember getting ready to go the first night and thinking, I should dress up a little bit. You know, I I think I maybe had jeans on, but I threw on this beat up tan suit jacket. I don't think it was even a sport jacket. I feel like you got it from Goodwill. Oh, I all all of my suits, (laughs) except for the one I got married in, which is a tuxedo, are from Goodwill or anything like that. So... This one, you know, it fits pretty well, but it's it's part of a suit. It's not a sport jacket. There's something about shoulders that is, is wrong <laughs> wearing it by itself. But I thought I might as well put this on. You know, I'm going out, whatever. Right. And we get to Westchester and you kind of disappear off. Right. You, you, you I, I to head go. to the green room so I can unpack my cello and warm up. And I leave Matt at the box office. And I'm at the box office, which is just a hallway and there's nobody there. I'm looking around and I can see doors where there's sort of a din and I walk over and look through those doors and my goodness, everybody's in a tuxedo. And not even just tuxedo. It was like white tie, mm-hmm. which is like a step above black tie, right? Mm. It's like people are in fucking cummerbunds and shit. <laughs> so I'm like processing this like, okay, all right. I definitely, definitely misfired on the apparel for this one, but that's okay. I don't, I don't really care. I'm, it's fine. So uh, you just hide. You just hide in the back uh, of, yeah. the, of the theater or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So uh, everybody gets let loose and they start doing the ticket thing. So I walk up to Will Call and I say, hey, my wife, she's in the orchestra tonight and she said, I have a ticket here. And they're looking and they're looking. I said, oh, we have your name for tomorrow. But you know what? There is a spare seat. Uh, we can just give you a seat. I'm like, all right, cool. So I take this ticket and she goes, oh, it's a good one. It's right up front. <laughs> oh, wow. What luck. <laughs> Wonderful. So I take the ticket and it's literally second row. Uh-huh. And I think I'm the third seat in. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. <laughs> Basically front row seats. I don't I don't know that anybody who's seated in front of us. So then people file in around me and, and a woman sits next to me and she says, uh, oh, you know, what brings you to this event? 
oh wow my wife you can she's got like orange hair she plays <laughs> cello she got me a, a ticket to this uh what brings you here and she goes oh my grandfather's charles swope they named the building after him <laughs> he's sitting right there it turned out that the ticket that i got was for one of the swopes they called in sick and I'm sitting with the family that the building is fucking named after. Because, and I'm backstage and I find out, I mean, it's too late. You know, what am I going to do? I find out in the green room that nobody else's partners or family or boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever are in the audience tonight because the two concerts that we have on the Friday and Saturday night are for two totally different audiences. The Saturday night concert was intended for our, you know, rabble regular guests, but the Friday night concert was intended for donors who had given more than (laughs) $10,000 to the capital campaign to build this fancy-ass new building, right? And I'm like, oh, shit, I didn't know this. And everyone's like, yeah, there's like this big dinner going on in the other room and it's white tie. And I'm like, oh, shit, 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 shit. And I was worried that you wouldn't get into the hole. But, you know, then we came out on stage and, and... Well, I was pretty easy to spot. Yeah, I was like, oh, my God. Like, it's this sea of penguins right and then matt is wearing this tan fucking suit in the second row and i'm like oh my god what have i done what have i done oh no but then if you think about it anybody else who's in this crowd is looking and they see this like 20 something Mm -hmm. with messed up hair and a tan suit sitting next to the swopes (laughs) and they must be like wow that guy's got so much money he doesn't give a shit (laughs) that guy has fuck you money (laughs) (laughs) Like, he, he's probably, like, a multi-billionaire tech fucking, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I bet he, I bet he built, like, Google and Napster. <laughs> so, yeah, got to sit with the Swopes as the building was dedicated to the Swopes. And they, and were, they were nice to you, right? They were very nice. They are yeah. incredibly nice people. And it was, uh, like, the performers it was like that Frederick night? von Stade and um, Dick Hyman. And, like, they had all these, like, really top flight performers for the Friday night show only. <laughs> and then the Saturday night show was, like, master's students and faculty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what is my life? very amusing so anyway I was, I'm getting flashbacks to that yeah. because I'm walking around and these artists see me as being not one of these finance bros in, in a suit that costs more than all my suits combined and I've had to sort of break character or introduce character so what did you say to Susie oh I was like it's wonderful I'll, I'll sh- I'm sending it to my wife right now She, I bet she's gonna love it too uh, I'm like babbling and I'm like I just so you know, I'm 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 just here. I I'm going back to a puppetry festival in Connecticut tonight. <laughs> not a festival, a conference. I'm helping. I'm not one of them. I work in the arts. <laughs> and she like turned on a heel, <laughs> like, which I don't blame her for. She didn't even make polite small talk to back away. She was just like, okay, <laughs> like, moving on to someone who can actually support the work that I do because. Making neon signs is not cheap. No, no. So, you know, more and power to her. Wonderful work. I hope she finds somebody to buy those installations because they're fantastic. I have a, a great video of it. And this sort of happened over and over again where I I started introducing myself just to get ahead of it and be like, hey, um, wow, really great thing that you're doing here. I'm uh, just visiting for about an hour because I've got a puppetry conference I have to get back to. And 
it was kind of neat to see these folks go from like patron face and like oh i'm i'm being artsy and weird and like am i impressing you to oh man isn't this weird isn't this place fucked up <laughs> like this is my first year doing it i've got friends who do it but like this is totally fucking weird I'm like it is weird like all these people are so rich and we're here for free or maybe you're getting i don't know what your arrangement is I'm not going to ask because right. I don't feel like asking about money on this floor. But it's very strange. we feel like an imposter in Wonderland. Yeah. This is not. <laughs> um, it was almost, boy, if I was living a different kind of life, mm-hmm. like I, I could have gotten so laid that night. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a very charged atmosphere. Uh, there were just attractive artists everywhere who were right. really like Talented flirting with me, and- not because of who I am, but because of who they thought I was. Um, <laughs> I had actually said to Matt, you know, if you get in a really good conversation with someone who is interested in what we're doing, you know, take a take a later train back up to Connecticut or stay the night down in Manhattan and come back in the morning. You know, I'm <laughs> several people at the O'Neill are, are from New York and said, oh, you could just stay with my spouse. Right. I had to put limits on myself. And I, also you were really tired because the puppetry conference is one of the most exhausting artistic experiences that you can have. And amazing and invigorating, but like by Thursday night, it's very difficult oh, to like... <laughs> yeah, so I spent less than an hour there. I sort of made the rounds a couple times just checking out all the different types of bodysuits people can wear. What was on the 67th floor? The 67th floor I only spent about 30 seconds on. I did go up there as my time was running out and they were just putting out the food. I hadn't eaten yet because I was riding the train and I looked at it and I thought real hard, but I had timed this very well mm. and I turned around went back down the stairs uh was it like like room and banquet fucking food uh, like not quite yet it was the hors d'oeuvres but there are lots of them sure i'm sure and they looked phenomenal yeah and it smelled great um (laughs) and i was looking at my watch because if i missed the 740 train back i wouldn't be able to catch a train to connecticut until at least 240 in the morning and i don't want to catch a 240 train from new york to connecticut it's going to be full of people I don't want to hang out with. You probably could have asked someone at the gala for something to keep you awake. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. This is why I'm glad I didn't go by myself and I probably... Melissa, sex and drugs and Dunphy. (laughs) (laughs) I I have a track record of getting into trouble. I mean... (laughs) I've already dwelled too long in this. I did catch Alexander before I left and managed to say hi. I had to run to the subway. I jumped on the first subway car with the right number on it. It happened to be going in the right direction. I made it back to Madison Square Garden to Penn Station. And I was on the Amtrak five minutes before it left the station. The whole thing in and out. Did the whole experience. Went and back. came back to puppet camp and continued your work with the puppetry conference. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot. I think it's safe to say that we were the only people from that information session at Cherry Street Pier <laughs> who went to the art gala yes. a few weeks later. And, um, you know, I have no idea if he listens to the podcast, but Alexander Durst, if you're listening, thank you so much for inviting us to the amazing art gala that, you know, I wasn't even there, but 
Matt's pick just blew my fucking mind. I wish I could have stayed. It was the sun was just starting to go down, and Alexander said, "Oh yeah, it's just getting started. Oh like things get actually pretty wild at night." I'm, like, <laughs> I, I'm sure they do, but also just the scenery. Like yeah. I've, I don't know when I'll be in the World Trade Center again. Jesus. Well, you know, we'll um, see. Yeah. We'll see. What a crazy fucking life we live. Mm. Well, moving on from that, so this archaeology that's going on at the PPA lot on the corner of Delaware and Callow Hill Street has been happening in the last few weeks. We're going to talk about that in a future episode, and hopefully we're going to be chatting with some of the professional AECOM archaeologists who have been investigating that site. So stay tuned for more about the Durst organization's development and the archaeology that has sprung from that. On the topic of archaeology, you Isn't actually... is this whole podcast about archaeology? <laughs> <laughs> no. <What? laughs> I mean, we talk about, like, <laughs> banking and... I mean, that is true. Home building. Yeah, I actually uh, think our most exciting episode is the one about banking. So if you haven't listened to episode two about banking, <laughs> you should go and listen go and to that episode. that. <laughs> But yeah, okay, so we're sticking with archaeology. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't the only one who had a little adventure. Your adventure was also infused with art. This happened a little while afterwards. Yeah, this is part of our June conference explosion, Yeah, right? So in the second week of June, I think we went to Puppet Camp, the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Center National Puppetry Conference. Mm -hmm. Then... The following week, like a couple days after we came back from that, I left again for another camp. So, okay, backstory. Last year, I saw a Facebook post from our friend, archaeologist Debbie Miller, who we interviewed in episode 14. And she was asking people to register for an archaeology conference that she helps organize in upstate New York called Dish, Dish Camp. camp. <laughs> And I saw Dish Camp and I got really excited because I was like, what? There's a Dish Camp? Because I already go to Puppet Camp and you're telling me that there is a camp that's all about dishes? This is amazing. I made some joke about how I really wanted to go to like Puppet Camp and Dish Camp in the same year, but that might be crazy to do two conferences. Heaven forbid back we do something crazy. <laughs> um, I couldn't go. I had a different conference that I'd gone to in Chicago for internet retail stuff. It just didn't make sense for me yeah, given the exhausted. build up to that and even afterwards. June was hectic enough, but you pushed through. Yeah, well, I didn't have to do the e-commerce conference, so I was like, sure, sign me up for Dish Camp. I'll just do that, and then I'll come back and do a coral conference after Dish Camp. No problem. It's good. I've just got natural uppers, I guess. You know, calm down, as that one reviewer said to me. Calm down, Melissa. <laughs> So Dish Camp is run by the Historic Eastfield Foundation um, on a campus which is called Historic Eastfield. It's a recreated early American village kind of outside of Albany. And it's used as a campus where skilled artisans and experts teach students, anyone can sign up, techniques of historic preservation and early American trades. The whole... Uh, facility is not open to the public like a museum. So it's not like 
colonial Williamsburg where I think anyone can go and, you know, take their kids and gawk at the people in costumes. We still need to do that. I know. We're going to do that. Hi, Rob and Michelle. We're coming. But the purpose of this facility is that in the summer, they run workshops on various things like blacksmithing, tinsmithing. I think they have like a silversmithing one, um, woodwork and traditional plastering. Sidebar, I am 100%. I wanted to do it this year, but it was just too crazy. I am 100% going to take their plastering workshop, which is three days long next year, hopefully. Because Add another skill to the CV. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because... What's your wife do? <laughs> I'm a plasterer. Well, because, you know, plastering is this dying technique. You know, drywall killed the plastering star. And... Uh, you know, it's just like a bunch of really old Italian guys who know how to do it around here. And I really want to finish the theater, especially the exposed brick walls, using traditional plastering techniques. And this is. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, we talked a bit about this. Plaster is actually really great for sound insulation mm-hmm. because it's so freaking heavy. If you've ever knocked down a plaster wall and, and carried we have. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's funny, there's been this trend of exposing brick walls and chipping plaster off of walls, but it actually reduces a lot of the benefits of having this really solid masonry wall with plaster coating it. So, I mean, I can get behind you wanting to do this without having to spend on an old master. Yeah. Anyway, back to historic Eastfield. It was founded by this guy named Don Carpentier who got interested in antiques when he was a kid. And then later he created the village, Historic Eastfield, on some of his father's farmland. It was the East Field in his father's property. So that makes sense. And eventually he learned to become an incredibly skilled recreator of historical ceramics, kind of like Michelle Erickson, except his specialty was mocha ware. You heard that right. In England, you'd say mocha wear or in Australia, mocha or mocha. So what's mocha wear? It's like a dip wear, right? It includes dipped wear, although nobody listening to this podcast knows what dipped wear is. We're just like a couple of real fucking nerds right now. Mocha wear, <laughs> it's like early 19th century it yeah. starts up and it's like white pottery that has really interesting design, colorful glaze techniques that... It uh, looks like it's from the 60s, like the 1960s. Yeah. But it's from the 1820s. Right. It's like fascinating stuff. So you, Maybe earlier. I'm no expert. Yeah. No. I, I don't, around there. <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs> Some of it is stripes which you know just look really modern and clean Mm -hmm. and then they have this one that's like dendritic which means like a tree Mm -hmm. and uh, we'll post a link to a video on how you make this stuff but it's like you cover the vessel the jug or whatever have you in a kind of slip that is basic as in you know on the ph spectrum it's betty slip (laughs) it's what betty slip (laughs) betty slip basic (laughs) (laughs) yeah basic and then you get another colored slip usually a dark colored slip that's acidic back in i believe in the video he says that it's i don't know that slips even the right word they were just using tobacco like yeah like Like spittoon juice yeah well and apparently back in the day they used to get drunkards to piss 
in this juice mm. to make it extra acidic mm. because you know drunkards just have the lowest pH urine <laughs> <laughs> money can buy Anyway, when you drip the disgusting dark stuff, acid, onto the basic slip, it goes fractal. It, like, spreads in a really fast fractal way and looks like little trees. Yeah. So that's, like, one form, another form of mokaware. Oh, and then there's, like, the wormy design. Yeah, which, honestly, I find, uh, some of the stuff I find pretty ugly. Yeah, I mean, Um, it's kind of (laughs) gaudy. (laughs) It's nice that they're exploring new earthen tones. But some of the stuff just, it's not my style of decoration. There are other people who really love it. Including Martha Stewart, because I actually found just now, I found a video (laughs) of Martha Stewart. She looks a little younger, so it must have been from some time ago. Before she did hard time. I think before she went to jail. Yeah, um, talking about Don Carpentier's pottery. Oh, nice. She does a whole introduction and she shows a mukaware bowl with the wormy design with the loop-de-loops that we kind of think is really ugly. But she's like, oh, this is so gorgeous. And here is Don Carpentier. I'll post a link. Oh, cool. Anyway, Don sadly passed away from ALS in 2014. But from all of the people that we've met since we've dived into this world of historic ceramics it's really clear that the community loved him and he was a tremendous influence on everyone and they really revered the work that he was doing because he rediscovered lost techniques of mukaware so it's kind of cool so what did you see there i mean obviously you did your research and it looked interesting but what was your experience like when you actually got to go up there and i couldn't okay first of all i packed our pipkin because I had a pretty good idea that the archaeologists would want to see that. There's actually a thing on the Dish Camp invite that says, feel free to bring your archaeological artifacts. So I said, okay, what am I going to pack? I'll pack my pipkin. First of all, I want to say one really ridiculous story from on the way up. It's a really long drive up to upstate New York. and uh, If you know anything about Melissa... <laughs> She tries to make long drives short, and it doesn't help that we've got a Mini Cooper S. <laughs> My citizenship application got delayed for six weeks because I have too many speeding tickets on my record. <laughs> Look, I am a perpetually late person, and so I'm always in a rush, and I was listening to this podcast about the Nexium cult because it was like... <laughs> relevant to the area (laughs) it all took place in albany and so i wanted to get some local color and flavor and i just zoned out and it was 10 o'clock at night and there were no other cars on the highway except for this one cop (laughs) one (laughs) one car with blinky lights but here's what happened so the cop pulls me over and i wind down the window and i'm just apologizing profusely and like man i didn't mean to rush i'm not even in a rush i'm so sorry i just zoned out i didn't realize and he's like where are you on way to tonight ma'am you know how they always ask this question just in case you're like going to murder someone i guess oh yeah it's oh where where are you heading to right right you know, <laughs> where's the fire <laughs> well well i always figure it's like some kind of psyops if you're a gangster and stupid, you're going to be like, I was going to go get some drugs. Oh, shit. Oh, no. <laughs> Wait, you're a cop? Oh, no. So I'm like, uh, just outside of Albany. And he's like, what's outside of Albany? Right? Oh, a test. And I'm like, oh, God. So I'm like, 
well, it's actually an archaeology <laughs> conference. And he's like, what? <laughs> so his next question is, are you an archaeologist? And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> how do I explain to him that I'm an amateur archaeologist who bought a theater from a pedophile in Philadelphia and stumbled into a privy? Yeah, this is just foreshadowing, too. Yeah. So I'm like, uh... Yeah, sure. I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> yep. And then, and then, so I have the pipkin zipped into a padded lunch bag on the seat next to me. I unzip the lunch bag and I pull out our pipkin and I'm like, look, I'm bringing this artifact to the archaeology conference. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, this is 250 years old. You want to hold it? And- <laughs> And he's like touching it going, wow, really? This is 250 years old? That's so cool. I'm like, yeah, isn't that awesome? Archaeology is awesome. I'm going to show it to people at the conference tomorrow. And he's like, you know what? Just slow down. I'm going to let you off. You're fine. Like, just please don't go fast. I'm like, I won't, sir. Sorry to bother you. I'm really sorry. And I got off a ticket. Okay, listener, that is now your cue to go to your local pottery studio, (laughs) pick up some artisanal pottery, hopefully not looking too modern, and just keep that in the dash, you know, keep it in your glove box. Support your local pottery artists. It might get you out of a ticket. (laughs) I could not believe it. I was so, so amazed. Anyway, so I get to the CD hotel I was staying at, motel, like, X-Files CD motel level. Um, And the next morning, I go to the campus for the first time. Mm -hmm. It is like this pastoral Arcadian place. You go off the main road onto a little dirt road for a little bit, and then they're like, park the cars next to this pond, which looks like a lake to Mm. me. Like, it's huge. And then you're looking out over this beautiful rolling field, I was parking my car and there was another woman parking her car next to me. And I figured, oh, she's probably coming to the conference too. Makes sense. Right, she was. (laughs) And she turns to me and she's like, so, uh, hi, you know, we introduce ourselves. She's Mm -hmm. like, what do you do? Are you an archaeologist? And I'm like, oh, I'm strictly an amateur, actually. And it got a little weird. (laughs) It got slightly weird at first because I sort of saw her face full a little bit. I mean, I don't know how many of them are going to get this far on the podcast, but uh, Melissa regaled me with stories of noses turning upwards at the word amateur. But it's real. Like, and we've talked about that on the podcast before. Like there is a real divide between the professional archaeologists and the amateurs. And I understand it to a large extent because Mm -hmm. we've run into some of those amateur archaeologists who are shady as fuck and you've got shady privy diggers and archaeologists who throw shade sure yes (laughs) (laughs) different kinds of shady but you know we've had amateur archaeologists if you want to call them that privy diggers try to friend me on facebook and i look at their walls and it's just MAGA, 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 MAGA all the way down. And I'm like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah, no. Yeah, we're not going to be friends. No, we're good. <laughs> please don't listen to my podcast. Yeah, please do. <laughs> no. <laughs> but here's kind of the cool thing that happens. So I walk into the conference and I'm, little, I'm a little bit scared because I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm this rank amateur and I don't know if they're going to be welcoming to me or not. 
First of all, the conference is held in a building on the campus, which is actually an old church. I think it's like 1840s church building or something mm. like that. So there are just all wooden old furniture and um, no electricity uh, or, you know, one or two outlets that have been retrofitted. Um, mm. And there's coffee, which I drank too much of. What and did it smell like? Pastries. It really didn't smell like anything like it wasn't a specific smell it didn't smell musty it didn't have that old building smell no not really because a lot of the soft fabrics or anything had been stripped away like it was very uh austere yeah yeah just like wooden floors and tables set up where everyone could put their artifacts that they brought from home and wooden chairs that everyone could sit on and that's it i do remember that the coffee accoutrement like the sugar and creamer were put into little reproduction porringes that look exactly like (laughs) the porringes that came out of our privy and i immediately went crazy and was like who made these porringes can i have one how much for a porringer but no one would sell them to me i was kind of pissed Mm. um it turns out like as the conference went on i think i hope that people saw that even though i was an amateur I was genuinely very intellectually curious about what was being taught and I wanted to learn. I was very wide-eyed at everything that was going on. I did let drop that I have a doctorate just in the wrong field and I think that might have helped actually. (laughs) Uh, uh, By the way, I went to an Ivy League school and I have a PhD and they paid me to go there. Well, I just, I feel like... I dug all this stuff myself. I mean, you know, um, (laughs) there was um, a point in the conference when I brought my laptop with me and I opened it up and, uh, you know, I started showing people pictures of our privy digs finds and uh, people got excited. And then when I pulled the pipkin out at the first (laughs) lunchtime... Four people in the room beelined for me. Yeah, I remember you sending me updates while you were there at just how excited people were. And I love that because I was really excited and I don't know anything. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, we were so happy, but we knew shit. It's just like intrinsically a cool looking vessel. Yeah. And to get people who are more versed in the space than us having the same, if not a better reaction is pretty cool to hear about over google hangouts which will be killed by google soon this is how we communicate it's so strange um so you got to experience that firsthand it was very cool they immediately started arguing with each other about what it could be like where it was from where it might have been made so that was really cool too i love causing arguments and disrupting things like a tech bro like no (laughs) disrupt disrupt um there are many theories about that pipkin and we may never know the truth but more on that pipkin later yeah it turns out that One of the reasons the archaeologists were really excited by my finds, and this is something that I think I've discovered talking to different archaeologists, is that most archaeologists, Debbie Miller with her one million artifacts excluded, most archaeologists don't get to see the large amount and kind of stuff that we excavated, like Hmm. that privy diggers find because archaeologists will go to i mean we'll see this with the west shipyard dig that we were talking about earlier 
they dug some trenches, but it's not a privy. So you're not finding a concentrated repository of hundreds of artifacts. They're kind of sifting through dirt to get a few artifacts or looking for a structure that... They're getting litter. Right. And they're getting structures. Right. So, you know, they were really excited by some of the stuff we found. We're also apparently just like the luckiest privy diggers ever. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I knew that. I mean, well... Uh, well, What do you mean by that? Well, first out the Bondon Morris, which is extremely rare. Right. And really special. And there were, you know, jokes made by these archaeologists' new friends about like, are you fucking shitting me? Like, you dig one privy (laughs) and you find two Bondon Morris pieces. (laughs) And then, you know, okay, so this is my favorite story from Dish Camp. There was a guy there who was from the Delaware State Archives, and he was giving a presentation at Dish Camp about shipwrecks along the Delaware coast that have yielded ceramics. So there were like two shipwrecks that he was presenting Mm. on. And he brought some sherds from the excavations of those wrecks that had come to the Delaware State Archives. And I was going past his table and I looked at the sherds and I recognized a couple of them as being from a pot that we excavated from the last dig that we did in May that we talked about in episode 18. Like I I recognized very clearly the shape, the profile of the shirt. Right. This is the thing Melissa talks about how we are insufferable uh, when we go to museums now. Yeah, um, I was a complete asshole because I went <laughs> straight up to him and I was like, oh, I see those shirts. I have that pot. And he looked at me and, you know, I think he knew I was this amateur and he's like, yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> and I was like, no, I really do. I have that pot. I just dug it out of a privy in Philadelphia. And he's like, sure, buddy. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, well, wait a second. Let me pull up the picture. I think I might have actually ask you to take a picture yeah on that first day that you're interacting with people you're like take a picture of the chicken plate take a picture of the green pot take a picture of the uh, and i happily oblige (laughs) that's being my lifeline at home so i pull up my laptop Mm -hmm. and i show him the picture that you sent me Mm -hmm. and i watch his whole face just kind of change like oh my god she totally has the pot that the should <laughs> is from. Like, 100%, it's that pot. Uh, and he was like, basically, this is incredibly rare, and I'm going to talk about it in the presentation, so stay tuned. And so I was very excited, and I went back to my seat way in the back <laughs> of the church to watch his presentation. And sure enough, during the presentation, when he talks about the shipwreck, and it was really interesting, actually, and he's sort of giving a theory about which ship it was that was wrecked at which time based on the ceramics that he studied that came from the shipwreck. So it was really cool. But then he gets to a slide that shows the sherds from this one pot. They're like three or four broken pieces. Well, I went Googling afterwards and he talked about this in the presentation. It's called Frankfurter Ware and it's a style of pottery that was made in Germany, Frankfurt probably, or somewhere around there. It's a solid guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But sold to the Dutch market. 
And it's really rare in the American archaeological record. In fact, there was a book from 2014 that I think was sort of based on discoveries from around 2010 that called the Frankfurter Ware on these shipwrecks the first examples identified in the American archaeological record. Mm, But not the last. Well, yes. (laughs) And we have most of this part. We have the whole form of it. It's we have the like whole we have rim. a few pieces missing out of the side, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we have the the entire shape of this pot. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty pot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, how would you describe it? It's um, like a cook pot, I think, but it almost looks like a small chamber pot. But it was easy to separate out from the rest of them because it was like a yellow clay with green glaze. Yeah, pale buff colored clay. Mm-hmm. And then the glaze was sort of a pale yellow green, like an apple green color. And then the handle was a sort of a, a Dutch or a very European looking handle. Oftentimes with these things, the handle really defines where something is from and the style of it. You learn something new every day. I know, it's crazy. So, I don't know. Have we gotten too nerdy? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll finish my dish camp yeah. story with like a couple of less nerdy things, I think. There was this amazing potter there called Mark Shapiro. He's incredible. He's the nicest guy. He's just... Ah, oh, he's just the nicest guy in the world. He taught us all how to throw a pot. <laughs> and then I approached him with the pipkin and he suggested that he create a reproduction of the pipkin like there on the spot which has been my wish like, like our dream we've we've been wanting so badly to just get one of these i just love the shape of it uh-huh. i don't love how our pipkin is lead glazed right we can't <laughs> use it no. unless we want lead poisoning melissa sends me this video of this guy observing just taking a look and it's like, how long is it? Like a 15 minute long? It's a fairly long video of him assembling mm-hmm. from a lump of clay, a reproduction and learning along the way how how the strap handle is connected to the feet and just the shape of it and describing as he goes this thing that everybody was abuzz about yeah. at Dish Camp. It was so freaking cool like i was just so excited to watch him make it and learn about it as he's making it because of course you can look at something forever but you'll never learn really the essence of an object unless you try to create it yourself and then you really understand which is why i'm so sure that michelle erickson understands these ceramics on a level that i can't because i don't do pottery oh yeah and watching this guy throw this pot you know, as they say about so many things, when they make it look easy, you really have to appreciate how good he is at doing this. Yeah. He just, boom. And it's his first time making the shape, too. Like, when he was making other shapes that he's used to making, it was just like, boom, 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 and it's done. (laughs) And he was taking his time with this because he was really trying to investigate how the shape was made um, on a wheel. It's crazy. It was. I loved it. I was so happy. So he... Very recently said it's been fired and is ready to send to us. So he is going to send that to us in the mail. If it survives, I really hope it survives. Um, I'm so excited. We're going to post pictures of our reproduction pipkin and us drinking out of it without getting lead poisoning. How exciting. (laughs) I want three more. (laughs) Well, we'll commission him. I want a full set. We'll commission him to make more pipkins for everyone. (laughs) The other things maybe worth noting. Okay. 
there was like a dinner. We had dinner with all of these archaeologists from all around the country who teach in universities or work with foundations or work on historical sites and all of these people. And they... Uh, the dinner was really an icebreaker. Mm-hmm. I got to talk to a lot of people and they were so welcoming and so nice to me and it was really lovely. One thing I just want to say is I kind of want to advocate for archaeologists everywhere because this has been a recurring theme with professional archaeologists that we've met. Mm-hmm. And that is that they have such expert knowledge, but they are so undervalued and so underpaid and it's not fair. Yeah, <laughs> Like, it's really... Not fair. I want archaeology to be a happier profession than it is. And I feel like a lot of the source of angst in that community is because, you know, funding gets cut and they're not as respected as they should be for their knowledge. And they put out all of this knowledge and then it gets ignored by the powers that be. And yeah, it made me really feel for them we've learned a lot about the whole field not just in general but particularly just individual archaeologists and i remember when we were first reaching out to archaeologists i was like i can't believe nobody's writing back to me Mm -hmm. um and now having a little more knowledge about this i totally get it yeah like at first i was mad that they weren't getting back to me because i'm like it's important and now i'm like oh you have a lot to deal with (laughs) yeah so, you know, if you know an archaeologist out there, give them a hug. They're probably going through some shit. Hug, hug your local archaeologist. <laughs> hug your local archaeologist. <laughs> um, there was also a cat on campus whose name is Fluffy Underpants. She is a long-haired, pointed, Himalayan-looking cat, and I was fucking in love with her. The so. cat looks like the cat's name. Yeah, fluffy underpants. Perfectly named I love cat. you so much. I hope you're there again next year when I go back to either Dish Camp or the three-day plastering workshop. So that's Dish Camp. Well, that was a lot of talking. Yeah, it was. We made up for, hopefully, skipping out on couple of months Uh, but i guess this is officially season two yes we're so happy to be back actually even though it's work but it's also fun yeah (laughs) welcome back to the bog house everyone we have a lot of fun things lined up for you i'm super excited about some of the upcoming episodes that we're going to be doing but i'm not going to reveal what they are yet because i don't know what order they're coming in And in all honesty, yeah, I don't know what the timing is going to be like because we do have a couple of things coming up uh, across the next several weekends. My goal is to release an episode every two weeks going forward because I know we did every one week for the first season, but I think given how we got sick every (laughs) fucking fortnight, I think we should maybe... Ease up on the pace a little bit. Yeah, just stretch that out a little bit so that we're not like driving ourselves to the edge of exhaustion. Yeah, and before we wrap up this episode, I want to say thanks to everyone who downloaded our EP of music. I was so glad that we could get that out there and we got some great feedback. You can still, of course, go ahead and pick that EP up from our Bandcamp page and Melissa still has the t-shirts available. Yes. Thank you to everyone who's bought t-shirts and who we've seen in the t-shirts. That's been really cool to see. This has been such a fun ride so far and I'm super excited for it to continue. And uh, onward and upward, it's just kind of getting better, the connections we're making and the stories we're uncovering. 
I'm Matt Dunphy. And I'm Melissa Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Thanks to our audio assistant, Kate, and our research assistant, Clarice. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you hear.